Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I am going to have my friend Mario Dettillo who began his entrepreneur career while in high school at the age of 18. I wish I would have known that uh, <laughs> and I would have started back then. He began investing in real estate in 2008 and started building a portfolio of mobile home communities in 2015. The portfolio is in five states and is managed by Celebrate Communities, Mario's property management company. So we'll talk a lot about mobile home parks today. Welcome, Mario. Hey, thanks, Alpesh. Appreciate you having me on and uh, super excited to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Absolutely. Thank you, Mario. So we start with this question with every guest. Tell us something interesting or funny about yourself. Yeah, I would say... Interesting is I'm probably, I, I never expected to invest in real estate. I, I really had no interest in real estate growing up. My dad was a, a builder, custom home builder, and had been oh, wow. in okay. different facets of construction. And so I always thought real estate was moving dirt. And uh, <laughs> so the interesting thing is, is here I am, you know, however many years later, hundred percent invested in commercial real estate. And, uh, so I just, I, I wanted to get into technology when I was in school and, uh, realized that I'm not smart enough for that. So moving <laughs> dirt and buying real estate was where I landed. <laughs> so that's funny. Now, basically it's a family business then. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so well, let's talk about, cause you didn't want to do real estate, but you started uh, your entrepreneurial career at 18. So you always had that bug. What was your very first real estate investment and how did it work out for you? Yeah. So my, actually my first business that I started when I was in high school was um, a network marketing business, which taught me a ton. And I actually did pretty <laughs> well with it. I made actually very good money doing it for a while. Um, but my first real estate investment started in around 2008. I had um, bought, uh, I was, I read some books on wholesaling and flipping homes. And I owned a real estate brokerage at the time with a partner. And so I ended up tying up a, a home on a golf course in southern uh, southern Minnesota, I guess you could say, which I was in the Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, okay. St. Paul area, and uh, tied it up off of an online news. You know, like online. You know, newspapers have an online classified yes. as well. Okay. I found one on there and uh, uh, tied it up with an option agreement of all things, and so and wholesaled that option agreement. So made like seven thousand dollars, and that nice. was just like. That was a ton of money for me at the time from a, you know, on, right. on a real estate deal that I really had no money in. So it was not a lot of money, but it meant a lot. You know, right. that first deal always does. And remember, we are talking about 2008, seven yes. grand uh, without any money putting in. It's, it's, a, it's a great deal. I, exactly. I think... The next deal is like, I think I netted like 70 something thousand wholesaling a, a large Whoa. luxury home. So it went from, and I, and right. don't hold me to that exact 70,000. I think it was like around 72,000 or something, but big jump on the second deal. So that's where I really got the itch. Nice. 
So how did you get started with investing in mobile home parks? Had been investing in single family for from about 2008 till around 2013. We started to see a lot of the distressed assets getting getting eaten up and now we were starting to look at, you know, potentially a normal stable stable market at the time at least it felt like where we would have to then market to homeowners sit down at their kitchen table sell them on why they need to sell us their home and all that we kind of went you know this has really become a job you know we we have to keep trading widgets or in this case it was homes in order to make money and if we didn't have the next home to flip we're out of business. Yeah, and we it's kind of transactional wanted... business, right? You... Yeah, it's very <laughs> transactional. And so we decided let's look at some cash flow assets and we had looked at renting out single family homes. It was something that we were probably going to be comfortable doing just because we knew the buyer, we knew, you know, or we knew who the tenant would be. We rehabbed, you know, hundreds of homes and and but what we realized is that we couldn't control the value of that single family home. No matter how much rent it produced, it was always right. going to be worth what the house next door was next worth. Door, yep. So, so instead, we started looking at commercial real estate, and you know, obviously stumbled on apartments, and we're like, well, this is an easy transition from single-family residential yep. to multi-family that's residential. That's what we all do. Yeah. Yeah. So we're <laughs> like, well, let's look for some apartment buildings. Took some education and started looking at a ton of deals, and really was struggling finding deals that made a lot of sense in 2015. Can you believe that? Or yeah. 2014, I was like- And then people are still doing apartments, by the way. <laughs> oh, I know they are. And, and four or five and, cap rate. Yeah, same I thing know. I, thought. <laughs> I wish I would have bought every single thing I looked at in 2014. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, being conservative investors, we ended up stumbling across a mobile home park. And, uh, you know, without getting into that whole story, that was the first deal that we pursued and from then on out, just went all in on mobile home parks. We own a little bit of self-storage as well, but the focus has been mobile home parks since 2015. Oh, that's interesting. So right now, when you receive a mobile home park deal, what are the things you look at as soon as you receive the deal? Yeah. First thing, first thing I look at is demographics. Is okay. it, what, what are the uh, median household income what is the median home value? What's the population? Is it growing or declining? And what's the uh, rents on a two-bedroom, one to two-bedroom apartment in the area? That's like first glance I need to know. Then I'm also looking at the MSA that it's in to determine okay. the size of that. Because, you know, size of the zip code eh, population-wise isn't that important, but the MSA is definitely uh, important to look at. Second thing I'm looking at, flood zone. I'll check the flood zone before I check anything else because I've went through complete underwrites on deals, you know, even went went into the negotiations on the contract and then realized, oh crap, I forgot to check the flood zone right. map. And it's in a you know floodway, and you're like, oh yeah, forget this is this. one so, of the thing I check right after. So I look at MSA and then uh, you know flood zone. So demographic, then flood zone, and then I'll start doing the math and looking at the property, jump down on Google and do all that. But it's you got to know the neighborhood right. that you're buying in because you can't change the neighborhood. You can change nope. the property to an extent, yes. but you know can't I, change I the neighborhood. <laughs> so uh, so let's, let's talk about all three. So where do you go to look at demographics? A quick look would be best places. Dot net. I, you know, that's, 
Yeah, if I'm going to do a quick look at demographics just to see those high-level metrics that we're talking about, I'm going to bestplaces.net because yeah. it's an easy user interface. Yes. It's not yeah, too much data. Um, and it's free. <laughs> it's free, yeah. And 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 honestly, I we don't pull data from paid sites at all um, for, oh, really? okay. for demographics. Um, we just never have. So maybe right. after the show, you give me a few referrals on good good platforms to use storage. We have, um, a little bit, there's one site that we have a paid account on, but again, for mobile home parks, we haven't, um, city dash data. Yeah. I was going there best places and city data. Yeah. Two of the best. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, and that is the reason I don't go to that site first is because it's just the data dump. I mean, it's yeah. so much information. If that I just want to quickly look, I got to scroll for five minutes to find what I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. But, um, those are probably the first initial places after that um you know we'll check even traffic counts with with mm -hmm. the uh, dot and all those different sites manually but quick looks it's best places and then city data for a little bit more depth that's awesome so once you 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 looked at it and once you realize okay this is the deal i want to look further so then can you take us through the underwriting process you go sure through. Yeah. So typically what I'm doing is I, I, I'm looking for reasons why I don't want to do this deal. I used to look at deals and go, oh man, how can I make this work? But what I found is you just waste your time because ultimately later on you go, you know what? That actually was a deal killer. So hey, I'm, I'm going to interrupt. Uh, this <laughs> is such it. a great advice, right? Because every time when we look at the deal, we are always thinking, how can I do this deal? Right? This mm -hmm. is a great point that how how can you stop yourself from not doing this deal? So basically you are removing yourself emotionally from this deal, from this, from the get-go. So thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, I, 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 I try and put myself in the shoes of like a bank underwriter because you know how quick bank underwriters are yes. willing to deny stuff. And it's not easy because you want to do deals, right? You're excited, especially yeah. when you're early on and you're trying to get your first few deals done. We're taught to be deal makers, right? We're taught to be yes. creative and make deals work. But that's good in some ways, but you also have to know what deal killers look like and yes. use those to check them off so you don't waste time. Because I've wasted, I mean, I'm guilty. Like the reason I oh, learned yeah. this, because I, I made the mistake. I, I I've invested because of weeks, <laughs> yes, weeks into things and money into things and been like, yeah. you know, if I would have just killed that deal within 10 minutes yeah. of looking at it, I would have saved myself yeah. a lot of headaches and probably been wor working on something else. So, um, Along those lines, I, I, I definitely want to look for big red flags. We mentioned demographics. We mentioned flood zone. I'm going to jump down on Google and I'm going to walk around the neighborhood. If there's bars on windows, if there's oh, things yes. in that neighborhood, strip clubs, pawn shops, it's definitely a red flag for me. If there's a, I mean, is it a deal killer if there's a pawn shop down the street? Probably not. But right. it's something that raises flags for me that the neighborhood might not be attractive. Yeah, the cars, you know, the trashed cars, uh, you know, window broken, whatnot, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, it's kind of a lot of times we get too technical on things before we use common sense. And with Google <laughs> Earth and the technology that we have, you can use common sense to weed out a lot of deals right up front. So I'm doing that Google Earth search. Then from there, I'm making sure that I've got all the most important information about that property, total lots, total occupied lots. How many of those homes are park owned versus 
versus tenant owned? And what's the occupancy on all those? What are the rents on both lots and homes? And I'm going through an entire seller questionnaire, whether it's provided to me in an offering memo, which usually isn't the case because I don't right. look at much that's on market, but I'm, I'm making sure that I've got all the most important information about this deal. And then I'm doing a quick calculation back of the napkin, you know, total lots, I'm sorry, total occupied lots multiplied by average lot rent times 12 times, you know, point, whatever the expense ratio it needs to be. And then I'm dividing that by a, you know, a reasonable cap rate on what I think that market should be. And I'm just saying, am I within range of that seller's ask price? I don't even want to waste my time if I'm super far off. Um, and from there, if I'm still within range, then I start looking through the rent roll. If I've gotten that, I'm looking through the PL, looking for any major issues right away. I used to spend a lot of time modeling all that stuff out before taking the time two minutes to skim over both of them to see if there's anything that's just a major red flag. I see. You know, and so that's that's kind of where I start out. And I don't know how far you want me to go down the road on this, but you know, I'm I'm constantly trying to save myself time by doing some of these things. So I'm only spending the time doing the heavy lifting, doing the full modeling out on deals that I think I really have strong potential to pursue. So, um, no, this is great. So first you are going through more of like scheme through, uh, running through a back of the napkin analysis. And then at what point do you think, uh, do you decide that, okay, this is the deal I should pursue and I should go into heavy modeling or underwriting process? Yeah. One thing that I've started to listen to myself on, and I never used to do this, and where it's probably counterintuitive to what we're taught on investing is I, I, I have started listening to my gut a little bit more on, and, and the question I ask myself is, do I want to own this asset? And because you can look at the numbers and they look sweet. You can look at right. a lot of things and it looks pretty good. And then you go, yeah, but it's in, you know, it's in BF Egypt and it's going to be a four hour drive from an airport. And I start taking into consideration, do I actually want to own this thing? Not as it a good investment. If, if after looking at everything, I'm still going, yeah, I actually want to own this asset and I want to deal with whatever problem it's, problems it's going to throw me, then I start looking at, um, then I start breaking down the model of, you know, taking the rent roll, multiplying it out, putting it into the spreadsheets. And, and I, again, I'm not quite sure how detailed you want me to get on this, but um I, I do also, before I even start write, putting it into the spreadsheet is I put together a business plan and okay. it's nothing fancy. It's year one, year two, year three, year four, you know, however many years it's going to take to get that property stabilized. And I just make bullet points. Year one, we're raising rents by this much. We're billing okay. back utilities. You get the point. And that way, then when I go and model it, I'm just following that business plan to see where, you know, so I've gotten, I've thought it out at least for a few minutes before I actually start building out a spreadsheet. That's, you know, 10 tabs and, and right. 500 cells later. Yeah. Um, so that, uh, underwriting, uh, spreadsheet is that your, your own, or do you use someone's smart, uh, software or it's my own. Um, and, and, to be honest, it probably didn't start out as my own. It's been right. modified so many, so of much course. over the years, but it's, it's a spreadsheet. I'm not using any sort of, of software to do it. I've, I've also 
kind of simplified the spreadsheet a little bit too. I got to the point where it started out simple. Then it got very complex. So complex. Yeah, so complex. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. I don't remember what this cell does. Oh, yeah. and I got to jump around. And, and now I have simplified it a little bit more and then brought in the key metrics that I'm looking for. Um, you can get really, really in-depth on modeling. The truth is, it's still a performa. Yeah, so, it's still theoretical. Right, it's <laughs> theoretical. It's, there's so many things in a deal that can change yes. that you can you can spend a lot of time and get so granular that you, you know it it it's a waste of time. So, in in the pre-offer stage, it's typically you know full modeling out. I'll model it out over ten years, but after that. I'm making that offer and in due diligence, then I'm getting super granular, looking at utility bills, you know, and right, really breaking right. it down and figuring a lot of, a lot of those individual items in each cell and tweaking the model. Once I have a lot more data from the seller, typically I get, if I'm lucky, a rent roll on a napkin <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, QuickBooks summary profit and loss of yeah. that year. And, and that's about it, which isn't a whole lot of information to go off yeah. of. So a lot of it is just theoretical and what yes. I, you know, from experience, what those things cost. And then once we get into due diligence, get a lot more data, then we can clean it up quite a bit. Yeah, actually, those are the best, though. You can negotiate more when you get the rent roll on the paper, Absolutely. right? <laughs> and, and if I get it in the form of an email, it's even better. Usually, it's a text message yes. or something. <laughs> Napkin screenshots. You know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and then, is, oh, I only yeah. take cash for this people, right? So it's not on my tax return. And then in the tax return, you see all kind of expenses all over. <laughs> yes, it's... I used to be afraid of that, and now I see the opportunity in yes. it. Usually when you get un, really dirty financials or minimal financials, it tells you two things. Number one, there's probably a lot of room to add value and systemize yes. and, and professional make this operation more professional. But secondly, it tells you they haven't been considering selling, yeah. which tells you then that they haven't you know been thinking deep into the numbers and talking they don't to tech know the brokers. Market. They don't know the market. So they, they've got a number in their head that makes them happy, which yeah. I'm, you know, I love it when my number matches the number that makes them happy. And so it, it means that you're early to the table to work a deal. And so yeah. I, I do appreciate when someone doesn't have good financials, yeah. no, rent that roll reminds, helps, but. <laughs> that reminded me recently, I went to, or a couple of months ago, I went to uh, North Carolina market and um, I was looking at, another mobile home park and then i saw a nicer one and i'm like oh this is the one i should own so i went and spoke with the owner and he was so out of reality i just you know after talking to him i ran the numbers in my head right away and i'm like okay yeah i can pay 1.8 to maybe max two mil and he's, he's like oh yeah i'm looking for four mil i'm like <laughs> we are so far off there is no way we can come to anything <laughs> why waste Another second on this. Yeah. And, and it's funny that you mentioned that though, because if a seller, and I don't know about you with your experience with this, but if a seller doesn't have a number to start with, yeah. I've never put a deal together with them nope. ever. I've never made a deal with a seller who didn't have a purchase price that they were yeah. willing to give me because I've realized that there's one of two things happening. They're just curious about the yes. market and they want to see what they can get or 
they're going to play games with you to yeah. start. And almost every time I've ever blindly offered, they go, oh, I can't believe that. That's so low. And you're like, low to what? You told me what you wanted. So now I just go, hey, I don't want to spend any time making an offer if you don't have an idea. I can't make you happy. They usually take your number and then they go research exactly. research what they want. And then they always come back higher yeah. because they've talked to 10 brokers. So it's better to wait, you know, spend time with people who at least have a range in mind yes. yeah, that I they agree. want. I agree. So it makes me happy if they don't know what happy means, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I didn't even give him my number. I'm like, okay, this guy is so far off. Let him talk to other brokers and figure out. So let's talk about underwriting a little bit more. Who are in your underwriting team or is that just you? Yeah, good question. So right now I've got uh, an acquisition manager and a junior acquisition manager. And I also have a part-time underwriter that helps me out with, he's an analyst. Um, and for things that look like we're going into due diligence or we need a second eye on, he'll go and spend a lot more time on right. it. In the due diligence process, he takes all the bills, models, you know, uh, confirms them with the utility companies and plugs them in. So that, and, and I really am trying to get to the point where I'm not looking at a deal uh -huh. until late stage where we're about to sign a contract or something. Yeah. Um, honestly, though, it's back of the napkin by the junior acquisition manager. It's a little bit more time spent by the senior acquisition manager. And then either myself or the analyst is modeling it out. Got it. No, that's pretty. So let, let's talk about. Miss, you go through all this analysis, you know, before uh, getting to the signing table, right? Or putting it in the contract. Mm -hmm. Do you remember any mistakes you have made during underwriting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do I remember any? Um, yeah. I mean, I've I've done it to where I plugged in the utility income for reimbursement, but forgot one of the utilities for expense. <laughs> expenses and man we were crushing it on that deal until we went wait a minute we're missing the gas bill or i can't remember exactly which utility it was but we had it on the income side it wasn't gas it was probably water and and then we added it in later and we're like oh crap we just shaved thirty thousand dollars off the noi just doing that i think probably the most common mistake that we have made on underwriting is probably guessing either too low on insurance or taxes. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's property insurance one. and property taxes, you know, in our initial quick evaluation, or if we're just thrown into a model real quick to see where we're landing, you're guessing. I mean, yes. you really are. And just based on looking at our portfolio, where we own, we go, okay, this is kind of the same region. It's about the same size. We add or subtract a little bit. We're guessing because we're not going to go yeah. get a quote before we make an offer. And same thing with the taxes, you know, if it, especially if it's a new state, we're somewhat guessing on that. And then right. in due diligence, we're spending a lot of time talking to the property appraiser, understanding how they value the property each year and all that. And in that case, sometimes that number is very different. Right. No, that's a... That reminds me of my second small multifamily, which I bought on my own nine-unit apartment building. And um, I was guessing both property taxes and property insurance. When I started getting quotes for the insurance, they were three times higher. <sighs> 
three times. And then I'm like, okay, I may have to kill this deal. And then I went to the same broker who was insuring the property right now. And I was able to get it closed. It was still, I would say 1.5 times because the property value has changed, right? Since the guy bought it 20 years ago. Yeah, and he's but, never increased it since then. <laughs> exactly. But the property taxes blindsided me a lot. It went up again, like about 3.5 times when I just changed hands. And there was some, when, when it switched hands, it seems the city realized they were not um, charging this property for some firefighter union tax. Oh. And that was just additional double the amount. And they had not charged it before, but when it switched hands, the city realized. And I'm like, oh, how do you even think about this, right? <laughs> so, yes. And and knock on wood, the deal still made sense. Um, even uh, right now, I own it, but that was a yeah. big one. It changed all my numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's and and I and I I don't know if it's even a mistake because we still kind of make that mistake. It's really hard yeah. to gauge right. those numbers before you go and get quotes and spend the yes. time with the appraiser. Yeah. Once you've spent time, the big mistake you can make is not spend time with the property appraiser uh -huh. and not get a good quote in your due diligence. Right. right. That epic. That, I mean, that, that can kill you. Um, uh, and, and it's brutal. It's, it's just something that's hard to nail down when you're, when you, especially in a new market that you've never invested right. in, you just don't know. And you're not going to go bug your insurance agent for every deal you're offering. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they disown you, right? They're like, I don't yeah. want you as yeah. a client. <laughs> so I would say that uh, I'm just trying to think of any other major mistakes that have been made in underwriting. Yeah. I, I think it's just a lot of little things. You know, you miss something, you get going on it. Oh, Here's one. It's not major, but we did this on the last deal we bought. So we're not perfect. We still make mistakes. And I'm willing to admit it. All of us do. So, so get this. We're buying this park and actually a pretty great park. It needed some work, but it wasn't super heavy roads and some other, you know, trees and not, not, not heavy work, but enough. And as we're walking around the property, we're going, man, there's a lot of junk around here. And in the back of the property, there's this massive pile heap of just crap and it's oh, wow. it's bed frames it's just right. people have been throwing trash back there for years probably in this one big pile we note it we mention it we talk about it 10 times throughout the due diligence process what's the one thing we forgot to put a price on getting rid of <laughs> haul it away <laughs> yeah hauling away all the trash around the entire right. park that we complained about for three and days such a big pile <laughs> <laughs> and it was the bids were coming in at like 20,000 21,000 massive massive yeah. so let me give you the tip on that though so of course we're like crying because we're getting hit with these huge bids to get rid of all this stuff and that uh, either the manager or our regional manager goes, you know, I'm going to call the fire department and see if they do a controlled burn on this. Cause it's a big enough oh. pile where you'd need a crew. Sure enough, they were willing to come out and do a controlled burn on that pile. It cost us nothing. And then there was just nothing. Wow. Well, that's crazy. It cost us nothing to do the controlled burn. Right. We had to get maybe two dumpsters out there just to put right. up the remaining stuff, the metal. And get rid but that's of that. Easy, and that man. was it. That's... <laughs> we got saved on that one. Yeah. Not always that lucky. Yeah. No, you got to just keep your eyes and ear ears open, right? You never yes. know. 
the thing that you're talking the most about can sometimes be the most familiar. So you forget to actually write it down. And that's, uh, and that's where we didn't go get bids on that. Interesting. What has been your best deal so far? Oh, man. All right. The best deal full cycle so far was the first park we bought. Thankfully, okay. the first park we bought was a home run. We bought this park and I don't know how much detail you want me to get into. It seems I, I know the listener base is pretty sophisticated and, and advanced investors. So they might get a little, get a little um, more out of the details on this. If it's cool with you, I run through sure. it. Um, so first park, of course, I told you we're looking for apartments, right? And it's commercial banker friend of mine calls me and goes, Hey, I know you're looking for apartments, but I got this mobile home park and it's in your area. Would you look at it? Sure. I'll look at it. He goes, by the way, that it's a note, it's a non-performing loan you can buy on the park. It's not the real estate. Right. Cool, no problem. We've bought loans before on residential. So non-performing loans on residential uh -huh. and use that as a strategy to get the asset back. So sweet. I love it. So we ended up looking at the deal. The best part about this deal is that it was in receivership. So all the financials were certified by the court oh, wow. um, and, and they had a receiver, which was doing nothing with the property except for collecting the rent and doing the books. He wasn't managing at all. So the, pro the, the property looked horrible and it wasn't being managed well, but the books were crispy clean because they were being done by this receiver. So we buy the park. Uh, we bought the loan, I should say. And one important thing to note about this deal is there was a million dollars worth of code enforcement liens on this property, like $1.2 million worth of code enforcement liens. Wow. There were, there were a bunch of people that had tried to buy it on a short sale and it, they'd get it. They, they'd get to the point where they were researching it, and then they go, well, crap, I could buy this loan for almost nothing, but I've got all these liens that I can't get around. So I by see. us buying the note, we were then able to foreclose out the, foreclose out the liens. And, um, we did pre-closing or really in our due diligence period, work with the County. We went to him and said, Hey, we're going to wipe you out. Obviously we know that there's violations there. So you can come back in and start by giving us violations and start the whole thing over on us, which we're trying to avoid because we want to clean it up. We ended up negotiating a deal with them to where they wouldn't, and they held to their agreement, the whole ownership period that we had it. And so, yeah, we foreclosed out those liens um, took back the property, ended up working out a deal with the borrower, had a $4 million personal guarantee. And he was a, you know, he's a good guy. Wow. It wasn't, he just bought it for development play and never did it and overpaid by way too much. And so we ended up working out where he paid us to get off the personal guarantee to the tune of about 135,000 or 140,000 nice. to get off the personal guarantee. We bought the park for 750. Now we took off, call it just for easy numbers, 150. So we're down to 600 basis. Right. And then made some improvements from cash flow. It was mostly a management play, not like heavy improvements. We probably spent 70,000 on improvements, not major. Um, and refinanced it, pulled, got all of our initial investment out, did not increase the, the loan amount above what we had into it and sold it. Um, we bought it in 2015. Sold it in 2019 for six and a half million bucks cash. Whoa. So, yeah, Whoa. 10 times. It was, it was about 10 That's times. That's a good one, man. That's crazy. Yeah. So um, it was one of those deals where we kind of said, we really don't want to sell this asset because if you think about it, right. you know, could 57 have space and, park, yeah. 
we were cash flowing like crazy yeah. on it, but somebody came and offered a price. So we're just yeah. like, all right. No, that's a that's great price. That's a the great deal. Price. So, what has been your worst deal and what did you learn from it? Really good question. So, my worst deal, I'm not going to mention where it is because I still own it. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was, it's a, it's a, it's a 70 something space park in Florida. And frankly, it's just the area, the uh, area we're aggressively buying. It's, it's just got always going to have turnover because mm -hmm. the people, the people in the, the demographics in the area are not attractive and it's not to the point where people are shooting each other. It's not like the, the ghetto. It's just the area is just low income and it. it'll always have turnover, a lot more of a renter mentality. And so, you know, we've, we've just had issues with turnover. People buy the homes, but they still just walk like it was a rental. I don't know. They must get money from something, buy the home, and then they still just walk from it when they can't pay the lot rent. And so we just had turn a lot of turnover there. So we've worked to upgrade the homes more versus selling them with, you know, doing light work. We've upgraded them more and then we're selling for selling them for a higher price point, which seems kind of the opposite of what you'd want to do. But what we've been working on is just changing the client, you know, the tenant base, getting getting people who could get financed through 21st. And although they're still not selling for the selling for a lot, maybe 25,000, 20,000, the fact that 21st underwrites them and they're willing to go through that process, they've got a down payment and they're buying something for 25 grand weeds out a lot of people. It slows right. down the sales process. And because of that, we've had a slower, you know, slower sales period for each home, but we've improved the quality of the tenant base kind of one home at a time. And we did, we, we didn't do that initially. We just kept going with it. We kept having the turnover. And finally we said, we're either going to do one or two thing of two things. We're either just going to keep dealing with this or we're going to bite the bullet and start investing more into the homes and try and get rid of the the bottom paying tenants. Right. And 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 it's and it's slowly worked, but it's never going to be a phenomenal park just purely because of that entire county is just low income. So yeah. my learn on that is believe the demographics when you see them. No matter how bad you want to buy a property and expand your portfolio, don't think that you, your operational abilities can outperform in a, a market. It's just right. the demographics are the demographics. If they don't make much money, you know, yeah. and they're mostly a renter mentality, you're probably not going to get that strong home ownership vibe in the community. It's just never going to happen. Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And the demographics change takes years, years. So if you are banking on that, that's going to take 10, 20 years. So yeah. And I mean, <laughs> if, if you think about it, I'm talking about a community in Florida. Yes. Everybody goes, oh, Florida is the best. Florida and Texas, in. right? Right. Yeah, now. You can buy yeah, anything and make wrong. money. Yeah. You can make money at it, but you're just going to have so much turnover. It's going to be yeah. a management. It's just management intense is really right, what yeah. the pain point is on that part is management intense. No, that's great. No, Mario, this was great. So let's switch gears. Are you ready for fire round? Hit me, I think. <laughs> Do you see any impact on the mobile home park industry because of rising interest rates or recession? Yeah. 
and and you're saying do i or have i or do i expect what do you see any impact yeah um i think what's happening right now and we're talking in you know september 23rd of mm-hmm. 2022 right now so obviously the date matters for this answer but interest rates ticking up hasn't created a mass hysteria yet but what it's doing is it's forcing sellers who have thought about selling or might want to sell to come to the table. They're going, all right, this isn't ending. Things are getting worse. Values are going to start going down. If I'm going to sell, I need to sell now. So it's, it's taken sellers that maybe aren't desperate or super motivated, but are going to be motivated or at least have a reason to be motivated and going, all right, I need to start considering selling. So where we were seeing before, ridiculous prices, you know, just prices that made no sense and weren't really tied to cash flow, all speculation, um, where it was very difficult to buy things. That's changing. It's becoming a buyer's market. Now sellers are starting to talk reasonable cap rates are all of a sudden important again. You know, we're, we're seeing cap rates in the eights and nines, which is just mind boggling. That's crazy mind boggling because six months ago, nine months ago, you even you nine yeah. cap. That's insane. Yeah. We're looking six, at five seven, caps. Yeah. can get it. That was a good one. <laughs> right. People are fighting over six and seven caps. So, you know, I think what's happening is slowly but surely sellers are going to come to the realization that they don't have something that everybody's fighting for anymore. And they're going to have to, you know, negotiate now. And that's healthy. I think it's really healthy. It's good for us as investors. It's opening up the doors for new opportunities. It's also, um, there's going to be a little bit of gridlock. You know, you're going to see deals kind of spires and sellers butting heads a little bit for a while, but you know, with a three quarter point increase from the fed, what yesterday or the day before before yesterday, people are, People are, I think, are opening up their eyes that, hey, this is just going to get pretty bad. So it also right. has opened up the discussion for seller financing a lot more. Yes. Where sellers are going, yeah, I'd work out. You know, if I can get anywhere yeah, close I want this to what price, I want, yeah. yeah, I'll work out some seller terms for you. Right. So it's it's actually getting fun again. And not that it wasn't fun. It was just, you felt like you were spending a lot of time that on is, a lot of deals. That is a lot more balanced now. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> it feels like you can get deals again. Like we've yes. got multiple deals under contract. We've got nice. ton of offers out and it's giving, giving us confidence to add, to offer prices, make offers on deals that maybe we do have a little bit more distance on. And the crazy thing is we're not getting that. Hey, screw you. Take a hike. Now we're going, now we're hearing, well, let us think about this. Let me get back to you. And they're coming back with at least counters trying to work with you because they don't have that flood of people paying ridiculous prices. So that's my answer to the first question. That's great. Favorite real estate or business or maybe self-development book. All right. Um, First one, Bible. Um, It's it's the best life book and business book you're ever going to read. And it constantly modifies itself no matter the situation you're in. So that's my number one. Number two, traction. And I always say this when I recommend books, like, man, how do you put a second book behind the Bible? It's kind of tough, but traction is really good because it's an operational manual on how to operate your company. And we've actually started a a company now called Creops, 
that helps uh, commercial real estate investors and management companies and brokerages systemize their company using a system very similar to um, to traction. Um, and so I highly recommend that book. And there's a bunch more, but that's probably yeah, that's the one awesome. I would say if you're an operator. And one other one um, for, because I know you've got a lot of passive investors uh, that listen here. Um, am I being too subtle? By Sam yes. Zell is a great book. <laughs> it's a great book because yeah, it kind of lets you into the great. mind. Yeah, no let's see into the mind of one of the great investors of our time. Yeah, I agree. Any advice for beginner investors? Oh yes. All right. So if you're looking to invest, this is kind of my go-to answer. I might have a couple as I get talking here, but if you're looking to invest in any asset class, but let's just use real estate as an example. A lot of times what people do is they kind of chase the shiny object. They're like, hey, yep. these guys are talking about apartments. They're talking about mobile home parks, storage, retail, industrial, all these different things, single family, multifamily. I mean, you can just keep going. There's so many um, assisted living, you know, just all these different things and niches, renting the rooms, whatever, Airbnb. And it's very difficult to decide where to start. And what I would recommend everybody starts with is what your outlook on the economy and the market is. If you are really optimistic that the economy is going to be strong, people have got a ton of you know disposable cash, they're going to want lux luxury and they're willing to pay for it, then you should probably be looking at class A properties, hotels, class A apartments, class A, you know, luxury items because there's an there's good margins in that, especially when people are willing to spend the money. If you think the economy is going in the direction of, you know, where I think we're all kind of on the same page where it's, yes. where it's going right now. It's more obvious. Um, if it's not going to be real good, you probably want to invest in assets that are going to benefit from that type of economy. And believe it or not, right. there's not a lot of property types that benefit from people not having a lot of money. Um, and, you know, in 2015, 2014, when we started looking at parks and self-storage, because we do own a little bit of self-storage too, those were the two property types that we were like, man, the economy is going to get bad because at the time it was great. You know, we thought a couple of years, this thing's going to turn. And so we started buying parks then for that reason, because they do perform very well in down economies because people just are tight on cash and they need affordable housing more than ever. So I would say first start out with the direction the economy's going for the long, you know, for the, for the, for the next window of time position yourself in front of that and then narrow down the properties, property types from there. Um, but don't be looking at something that isn't going to perform well in the upcoming economy. You're just going to hang yourself. And that's an easy, relatively easy thing to make an, an assumption on. Um, second thing, partner with people. If you don't want to build at all, I kind of did it. I don't want to say did it the wrong way, but I did it the hard way. I thought, that I had to go build out. And as you know, mobile home park world, there's not, there's not really a lot of third-party management companies out there that do very good job. So we're used to building out our own property management companies. And obviously we have a dealership and we've got, you know, these other entities that support our portfolio. And I don't know what happened with my light right there, but anyways, um, I would, if I was starting all over again, I would figure out what I'm really good at and what I really enjoy doing. And that's for me, 
sourcing deals and raising capital. That's where I get excited. That's what I love talking about, right? And so if I could focus on those two and then team up with somebody who's really operationally strong and has that property management company, has the dealership, has some of that infrastructure in place, and just go focus on what I'm good at, I could have scaled much faster than I did. And so one thing that, you know, not to get off track, but one thing that I've done is I'm starting to look at more deals that I can partner with people on and offer that infrastructure that I already have in place to them. So someone who says I'm really good at sourcing deals, then great, bring the deals, tap into whatever structure I have that you don't want to build out. And we'll, we'll, we'll create the, the um, partnership to where you're doing what you want to do and we do what we're good at and, and be able to scale that way so they can scale quicker. And also I can scale quicker because I've got some leverage with additional partners right. doing some of the work. So um, obviously very selective on who we partner with and what deals we go into, but working multiple deals and recently just closed one like that. So I'm excited about that. So I think people should really consider not making it a one man, you know, one man army in this industry, especially commercial real estate specifically. I agree. How can my listeners switch out to you? I'd say the easiest hub to go to would be mariodatillo.net. And if you can just put that in the show notes or something, it's mariodatillo.net. There you can find my YouTube channel, which is all around mobile home park investing. You can check out all my social media platforms. You can even submit deals to partner with me on. And I give, I, I know a lot of your listeners are interested in mobile home park investing, and I've got a seller questionnaire that my team has spent since 2015, you know, tweaking and improving. It's a one sheet seller questionnaire, every data point you need on a mobile home park to be able to, to be able to evaluate it other than, you know, obviously financials. Um, and you can download that for free, right. From my website. And I'd say that's probably the best place to start because all my contact information is there. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mario, for your time. Hey, thanks for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. I like getting on shows like this that are technical. You're a technical <laughs> dude. And I like that because, and, and I like the, I like the high level discussions, but many shows are very high level. And when right. you get into the weeds on the underwriting and how you look at things, I think there's, you know, you, you ask great questions and I, and I respect that a lot from an interviewer. So great job. And thanks again for letting me be on. Oh, thank you so much, Mario, man. Thanks for listening to the wealth matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. So others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing.